Hello and welcome to the Companies and Markets show. My name's Ian Smith. I'm the Companies Editor of the IC. Joining me is a couple of the members of our company's team, our specialist writers, Emma Powell, who covers the financials. Hi, Emma. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. In the midst of a busy week covering the banks. Yeah. And all the other financial services companies to boot. And Jonas Crosland, who covers our property sector. How are you doing, Jonas? Oh, fine, thanks. Yeah. Okay, well, the one big piece of news this week uh, had nothing to do with either of those sectors, uh, but was in fact Kraft Heinz' approach and then withdrawal of its approach for Unilever, the massive consumer goods company. Emma, what happened here? So it was a bit of a surprise on Friday when Kraft Heinz came out and said they would be making a part share, part cash offer for Unilever. And surprising because Unilever is the larger company. Well, yeah, exactly. So I think that that was probably the most surprising thing about it. And it was an 18% premium, the offer, to the closing share price the day before the announcement was made. And it would have been one of the biggest takeovers of all time. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think the second biggest, the second biggest takeover of all time. So everyone got very excited about this. Well, exactly. But then uh, Unilever management quickly came out and issued a very firm rebuttal to the proposal, said that they didn't think it merited value for the shareholders. But what's kind of been interesting, I think, um, since that happened, is that Unilever has kind of faced some criticism for its margins, its profit margins. I think it was just today they've now come out and said they expect their core operating margin to be up the upper end of its guidance, I guess, in the face of that criticism. And I think, yeah, it was actually late yesterday afternoon that they came out with that. And that was really interesting because part of the rationale for the deal would be that Kraft Heinz would have to strip a lot of costs out of the combined business in order to justify the premium they would be paying. uh, And also then the amount of debt they'd have to raise to uh, fund the deal. So, A lot of people believe that they could actually do that because Unilever's operating margin is that much lower than Kraft Heinz, that there was wiggle room to do that. Although Unilever has been trying to improve its operating margin, it's got operational um, kind of strategy in progress. Um, So it's quite interesting that they then turned around and said, oh, by the way, our operating margins are going to be at the upper end of the guided range and we are looking at ways of getting shareholder value out of the business, which led some people to think maybe the foods division could be sold off so rather than Unilever itself being taken over by Kraft Heinz, it could dispose a part of the business. So now that's very much the tenor of the debate. Yeah, which is something we'll all be watching out for now. Again, that would still be a very big deal, even if it was just the, the food part of the business that was sold off. And it does look like the share price perhaps is baking in something else happening. So the shares, although they fell back once Kraft Heinz withdrew its offer amicably, they didn't fall back to the point at which they started prior to the offer. So there might still be some people thinking there is a deal to be done here. So, yeah, anyway, something something to watch, plenty to interpret. And I suppose there's also the question of political involvement in the deal. I mean, Theresa May, when she was launching her leadership uh, candidacy for the Conservative Party, was explicit that there should be a role for government in having a view to how foreign takeovers impact on UK businesses and the people that work for them. So although only a fraction or kind of a small segment of uh, Unilever's employees are in the UK, it's very important within the UK economy um, as a producer, uh, consumer goods supplier. So there, might, there was definitely a political angle there too. Yeah, something to watch. But let's, let's talk about results. And we've picked a couple of core sectors because you guys cover those sectors uh, this week. And there's been a bit of news and a, and a few important results in the banks this season. 
So, Emma, why don't we start with RBS and what happened before the results season kicked off? News around the disposal of the retail bank, Williams and Glynn. Yeah, so obviously um, one of the big stories coming out of the banking sector this week is RBS and it's very kind of difficult disposal of Williams and Glynn, which is a challenger bank. It was part of their obligations as part of them getting the the kind of the bailout that they would have to dispose of Williams and Glynn. But that's been kind of fraught with difficulties. It's suffered so many setbacks. There's, you know, they've been scrutinised by the Bank of England before reportedly because of the kind of technology risk of actually switching customers over to another lender. There's been CYBG and Santander that have made approaches or, or been, you know, looking at a potential purchase of part of Williams and Glynn. Um, so it's been a very drawn out process. Yeah. And we saw that with TSB when that was um, spun out of Lloyd's. And still they are working on that kind of IT transfer um, process. It's very difficult in these kind of enmeshed retail banking organisations. Um, So it's quite interesting to see now that that was a real big factor impeding Williams and Glynn, but management are now confident or they now have the option perhaps of not selling that operation and instead putting in place certain things that could encourage competition in a different way. Yeah, so so this was seen actually, um, the shares, you know, did receive a bit of a boost on the day this announcement was made because it was seen as perhaps an easier option. The HM Treasury has kind of proposed to the European Commission, which is now looking at this option of um, an alternative package of measures, which would mean they wouldn't have to divest of Williams and Glynn by the end of December this year. That would cost RBS around $750 million, which they would take as a provision. But basically what it would mean is that they would provide funding to, say, other challenger banks to encourage customers to switch from RBS to uh, these other certain eligible challenger banks. It'll be interesting, actually, to see what makes an eligible challenger bank. But, yeah, like you said, it's it's to make it a lot more competitive within the kind of small to medium-sized market that other measures were customers of these challenger banks being able to use kind of cash and check handling services within Williams and Glynn branches, things like that. Because that infrastructure point has been one for the smaller lenders where they said we haven't really got the same access mm. as the larger banks. Now, RBS's results are coming out on Friday, which is might be the day this podcast reaches many mm. people. But as part of those results, there's going to be a provision that they're taking against this process. So this process is still going to cost yeah. them over the long term. But in some way, the shares clearly suggested people thought it would be less of an impact than having to sell Williams and Glynn, which was a very problematic process. I think I think part of the issue actually with RBS, as with other banks, is that there's just a huge cloud of uncertainty, I would argue, over RBS's kind of fate more than any other bank, because them having to divest of Williams and Glynn how much that would actually impact them financially was a, is a lot bigger cer- uncertainty, I would say, than if they just did take this £750 million provision. And let's not forget, um, you know, we actually cover in the piece, that's not the only uncertainty they have. They've got this ongoing litigation in the US. That's a really big, big uncertainty. I would so say we're, waiting, we're waiting to find out how the size of the settlement with the US Department of Justice relating to the past mis-selling of mortgage-backed securities. Um, so that's, that could potentially be quite big. And that's one reason why the shares in RBS are trading below the forecast net tangible assets of the bank, right? The people are uncertain as to how much the book value of the company will take a hit from that 
what is likely to be a massive settlement. Yeah, they're making negative returns on equity also. But but it's all these kind of uh, legacy issues, which is, again, been a sector-wide issue. But particularly tough for them. Well, let's talk about some of the banks that have reported, because there might be some hidden gems in RBS's results that we can uh, talk about next week. But this week, a good week for Lloyd's, a not-so-good week for HSBC. Um, let's take them in turn first, and then perhaps we can talk about Barclays, which came out today. But Lloyd's, that's very much going with that process that we have been talking about for a couple of years now, or perhaps 18 months, of improving its capital position and paying back more of that capital to shareholders. It looks fairly simple. Is it that simple? Yes and no. Um, so, you know, it is, it is a buy tip for us. And, you know, there, I would argue, most far along the whole simplification process, you know, they're, they're really focused on the kind of UK retail banking operations. And where that, they have a big market share. Exactly. Um, and, and that does seem to be, you know, like the fact that they are the most well capitalised bank now. Income is a big thing with them. And I think obviously shareholders would be happy. There was another special dividend, another increase in the ordinary dividend for 2016. And this is the bull case for Lloyd's. And we talked about this in a podcast that we published right at the beginning of last year, was that they would go back to boring as a bank. The idea that as they built up their capital, they spent years improving their balance sheet, they would now start to pay out more of that in dividends. And we've seen increases in the interim and final dividends, and now the second annual kind of special dividend, which is all amounting to what is still you know, a fairly reasonable yield, but it means that Lloyd's is firmly back in the income camp. And the bull argument, I suppose, going forward is, or as payment protection insurance um, costs fall away and as interest rates rise and they get a benefit from their retail banking operations as part of that that the bank will have a lot more profit to hold back to be able to pass on to shareholders. Yeah and it's worth noting uh, the big kind of drive behind that that boost in pre-tax profits which is you know is what a lot of shareholders look at was the fact that um, PPI provisions were so much lower they were about 1 billion rather than the 4 billion that they incurred the previous year so that really helped there is a couple of caveats though that i would kind of mention and that's income for the for the retail banking operations was fairly flat so i think that is something worth worth mentioning and again that's kind of down to the mortgage book and trying to protect margins. I mean, because with a very, and um, we saw this in a few of the banks' results, a very competitive UK mortgage market. And anyone listening at the moment that's recently gone into remortgage um, will see that there is a lot of competition among the major banks around the rates um, that they're charging on mortgages. Now, this is limiting the profitability for a lot of the players. But Lloyd's was able to mitigate this to an effect, right? Well, yeah, exactly. They were. I mean. Lloyd's does have the advantage that has such a large market share that it does have a slight competitive advantage. Its cost of funding was lower, which did help mitigate it. Um, But, you know, at the same time, I would just, I think actually something that binds kind of all the banks, and we'll touch on this later, I'm sure, is the fact that income has not been that great. You know, it's it's mainly what the ones that have really boosted their profits, the ones that have either suffered less provisions or, you know, have managed to kind of cut down their operating costs rather than seeing any really big growth in income. Of course, that's, you know, to be expected to an extent because we are in this kind of ultra low interest rate environment. So there's only so much they can do anyway. 
is the bear case that we're still trying to find out um, what the impact of Brexit will be. That's a big issue for Lloyds because it being so exposed to the domestic economy, both in terms of um, consumer sentiment, but also in terms of the housing market. So that's potentially um, going to be quite negative for them. The interest rate improving environment is far from certain because it will be responsive to the strength of the UK economy again. So there are still worries for Lloyds. And as you say, the income is not stellar that they're generating. That exact reason that you just mentioned is the reason why they suffered such a big sell-off after uh, the referendum result, because they are very exposed to whatever's going to happen within the UK economy, you know, the outcome of the Brexit negotiations. They are very exposed to that. So in some ways it's been good, you know, what they've done with kind of cutting down their costs, becoming more simplified, but in the other kind of extent i guess is that um they're more exposed by that very yeah, nature they're less just... diversified than than say other universal banks okay. like hsbc great seek to hsbc there um they also felt that same pressure in their uk retail banking um operations from competition in the mortgage market pushing down the margins they could make on that part of their business Um, but they were less able to mitigate it so that was one of the areas that was a concern in these results that ultimately led to a fall in the shares is that fair to say yeah i mean also that they suffered um i think it was a 62 percent fall in their pre-tax profits um obviously there i would say is you know one of the last kind of universal banks we've got still listed there was a number of issues there really i mean there was a lot of one-offs so things like them disposing of their brazilian operations you know that caused a big kind of hole in the profits but is it fair to say that the the sell-off the brazilian operations and the reduction in their risk-weighted assets is something that people knew that what progress they had made made on that but some of the negative surprise in the market was around the income from certain segments and people looked at the underlying picture and said well actually the wealth management business isn't so hot and the retail banking business is not as strong in the UK although in Asia it's growing new business well what do you think people were responding to more specifically it, it was that income angle, I think, because, yeah, like you say, you know, the selling off the Brazilian operations, well, that did kind of blow a little bit of hole in in their income. Actually, yeah, it's that weaker sentiment that people didn't like, particularly around wealth management, I guess, weaker investor sentiment. People weren't as confident. People were sitting on their hands a lot more. I think that was the, the surprise. And that was what actually really affected the... Um, the income and the profits for the um, retail banking and wealth management business. I suppose with these day moves or weekly moves, we need to set them in the wider picture. I think HSBC is up by about 50% over the past year as a result of um, recovery in the commodity markets to which it's exposed in the emerging market economies. Um, and we saw part of that right with the right back of some of the provisions that they've taken. Um, but, and I say with um, Lloyds, they haven't had that kind of as strong a year um, because of the Brexit vote having a big hit on their shares, although they are starting to recover again now. Um, Just quickly before we move away from the banks, let's just talk about Barclays. Was there anything in HSBC and Lloyds that really transferred over to Barclays um, where they underperformed or overperformed? So there were some similarities, um, like I said, with HSBC and Lloyds, and that's that income, you know, was fairly flat 
all banks are struggling to to kind of generate a good margin and generate good income again because you know Barclays is is one of those ones that's been on this whole simplification program although they did keep some of their um, investment banking operations I think what what really which have actually done fairly well well yeah exactly and I remember you know the, the last set of results that was actually a very surprising factor but what's really kind of helped their their profits this time is Again, it's less um, provisions they've had to take against kind of conduct and litigation um, costs. And, that, and that's, again, what's really helped them. So we're starting to get a cleaner picture of these banks, do you think? There are always new costs that come out or um, new provisions. But do you think we're starting overall to get a clearer picture of the underlying trading? I think so. I think that was inevitable after they went through this whole simplification process. Also worth noting is obviously Barclays, Barclays non-core operations. They're still running all of that off and, mm. and, and that was another big drag on profitability. But um, I think so. I mean, what, you know, what's kind of really messed the, or kind of muddied the waters for banks is the fact that they have suffered for so long, so many you know, impairments against loans, and that could be related to commodities crisis for people like HSBC. But then, you know, a lot of the retail banks having to take um, provisions for PPI, and people are really just waiting for all these kind of provisions and, and impairments to really just kind of run off, and I guess want kind of income to recover. Obviously, it's uncertain that to the extent that will actually recover with low interest rates. But, but we've got some more piece of the puzzle. Um, at yeah, this. exactly. Okay, and we look forward to your Barclays uh, analysis piece, which will be in next week's magazine. But in this week, we have HSBC and we have Lloyd's. Okay, Jonas, let's talk about uh, house builders. You've reported on Barrett Developments this week. Um, as you were out of the office, I reported on Bovis Homes, <laughs> which is a company that I had recently written, uh, taking stock column on too. Um, obviously, we have Persimmon, uh, the largest listed house builder, and Taylor Wimpy, uh, the second largest, um, coming out with results on Monday and Tuesday, respectively. So we can kind of talk about some of the things going on in the sector ahead of that. What do you think we learned from Barrett's results about the health of the sector overall and their progress on margin? The wheels on the uh, the house building bandwagon continue to turn around very nicely. There have been some low whistles about um, high valuations, but nobody's prepared to put up their hand and say when the pillars of support will be uh, taken away. That's uh, high unemployment, high interest rates, the government cutting back on help to buy. As long as they all stay in place and there's a huge demand supply imbalance, it's hard to see much much change in the status quo and the housing white paper do you see that as having much of an impact on that supply demand question i don't think there's any silver bullet because there isn't one single solution to the housing shortage they are announcing bits and pieces but um i think the housing the, the white paper was a little bit disappointing because people were expecting a lot more and I suppose, as you say, the wheels on the bus keep turning. And for Barrett, what we saw there was decent returns that they are managing to generate for their shareholders. Yeah. After the referendum, um, I mean, they read the newspapers like everyone else and there were threats of recession and uh, uh, various collapse in house prices. So the first thing they did was cut back on the amount of money they spend on uh, buying land, which, of course, meant they had lots of money, lots of free cash. And... Giving it back to the shareholders is uh, predictably, well, it's a predictable move because people forget that 
10 years ago, nine years ago, they were tapping their shareholders for money when they all had rights issues to keep in business. So giving it back to shareholders is, um, is a logical move. Um, it's their money after all. But is there, is there a risk that that's a short-termist approach? That because of um, Brexit and related uncertainty, they are not, build, not buying land at a time when land prices are relatively benign and actually they might come to regret that? Or do you think that's just good conservative approach because we don't know the impact that the Brexit negotiation process might start to have? I think they get it in the neck if they do it either way because if they, if they start to build up big land banks, and most of them have five, six, seven years supply, if they go up to 10 years, there's two problems there. One is that they'll attract criticism for sitting on land and not building on it. And two, it will affect the return on capital employed because money spent on dead land just doesn't earn any money. So I, I think they'll just sort of take along the middle ground there. Land prices will remain benign simply because the small house builders who used to participate in the market aren't there anymore. They all went out of business. The other results, um, as I said, I reported on Bovis. Now, that was a mm. company that issued a slightly disappointing trading update between Christmas and New Year, where they said that some production um, had slipped from 2016 into 2017. And there have been a fair amount of negative headlines around some of the cons- customer service and snagging issues on some of their new, new build properties. Now, this result, it was quite interesting that they now, and we've also, I should say, seen the departure of the chief executive, well, now the company has had to reduce its production guidance for 2017 to say we need to slow this process down and they're putting into place a new customer service operation to make sure that they are answering customers' needs uh, effectively and that they're delivering houses of sufficient quality on time. Um, but they've had to slow things down to do so, which obviously then impacts on the return for their for their shareholders. What does Bovis tell us, I suppose, about the market? They tried to build perhaps faster and they, they admit that their uh, production could, uh, processes couldn't really support their rate of growth. They tried to build faster and more than they were perhaps capable of doing. Is that potentially going to be a risk with other house builders in the sector? All it shows us is that um, you can have a badly run company in a boom sector and still deliver reasonable returns, which is what they have been doing. There's no other company that I know um, as, as suffering those sort of problems because Bovis has always had uh, inferior metrics um, ever since the recession started. Do you think after the fall in the share price there might be um, prospect of a takeover of Bovis? I mean, some of their shareholders have been wanting it to happen. You might ask what other builder wants to take on a company that has serious production problems, but to the extent they might be addressing those problems, they still own, you know, five years' worth of, or nearly five years' worth of land in terms of their production capability. Do, do you see, you know, a company coming in and picking them up? Uh, yeah, there were a spate of takeovers. Uh, Taylor Woodrow, George Wimpy merged, but most of the mergers have been fairly uh, unsuccessful um, simply because um, there's problems with overlap. In other words, if you buy another builder that's operating in the same area as you, um, you suddenly have to start rationalising and closing things down. Uh, and it's not always um, immediately obvious um, how you can get two companies together. You know, Barclay Group, for example, specialised in inner-city, suburban London, uh, Persimmon, which reports next week, 
operates exclusively outside London. Um, they're two different animals, really. Do you think that shareholders should pay much heed to the customer service issues that occasionally break out into the public media, um, they say the local news media, around house builders? I mean, uh, as part of the nature of new build property is that there are snagging issues and there will be problems sometimes. Is Bovis a case study for why you should take things into account if there's a persistent level of complaints about a company, the scuttlebutt approach? So if you've had a personally bad experience with a company that I know the ed- our editor, John Human, likes to talk about. But is there, a, if you see a lot of news headlines, should you worry about that? Or do you think that's just the nature of house building is that you will have some dissatisfied customers? I think you always have dissatisfied customers. About 20 years ago, uh, all the house builders had a reputation for... Uh, rushing things and uh, building inferior properties. Um, that's changed now. And so, you, yeah, sh- shareholders should be worried uh, because it, it really shouldn't happen anymore. Okay, and just to say, we've also got an um, analysis of Galliford Try and its own house building operation, uh, Linden Homes, is doing very well there and offsetting some of the problems that they have um, nagging in their construction business. Okay, thanks, Jonas. Well, the cover feature this week is called inflation proof your portfolio there's a special podcast dedicated to the subject um, that uh, kate Beely has put together looking at how investors can inflation proof their portfolio and the kind of funds and strategies they can put into place so do have a listen to that emma now you wrote a part of the feature relating to the stocks that company investors can buy if they're looking to protect their shareholdings from uh, the effects of inflation. Now, Harold Wilson said the pound in your pocket has not been devalued, but anyone that's wanted to go out and buy some Marmite or other products might be finding that it doesn't quite go as far. What are the criteria you use to judge how a company might be able to insulate itself from the effect of rising prices? So there's a few, in terms of I looked at equities, there's a few kind of characteristics that most people would say a company would have and they would be able to resist the, the, the impact of inflation and kind of rising input costs. That's the big worry for a lot of companies um, and kind of squeezing their profit margins. So I guess the the biggest one would be pricing power. Which is funny, we talked about Unilever early, earlier because they are considered to be a company that does have really good pricing power because they have such strong brands. Although that was very much tested last year wasn't it in marmite gate as i well i guess yeah so that that is quite a funny example but um a lot of people i spoke to did still say they, they think that it's you know it's brands who that are so well known to all of us make it um a company that would have pricing power but really when you when you look at a company that when you're trying to determine whether a company does have good pricing power gross margins is a big thing that you would look at so not just how high their gross margins are but actually how consistent their margins are so i actually um carried out a little screen a little stock screen and um one of the criteria was you know within the past five years that their their profit margins their gross profit margins wouldn't have fallen by more than i think it was five percent because consistency is a really big issue i think so you can get a company that might not have astronomical gross profit margins but it's always consistent you also have a criterion in here around the annual growth rate in the dividend 
Yeah, that's a really important thing also, because I think what a good kind of dividend and a good dividend cover, which is obviously very important, what that shows is, is that companies cash flow is sufficient and consistently sufficient enough to be able to continue increasing their dividends over a certain period. And I think we looked at 10 years. And obviously, dividend cover was, a, like I said, a, a big issue with that as well. This just shows that you've got good cash flow, again, with the profit margins, that they're more resilient to inflation typically. OK, so one of the companies that comes out of this is Ashstead on the measure you just discussed, but also on the high, having a high gross margin, strong free cash flow. And what do you think about that business makes it a bit more resilient? Yeah, Ashted, that's um that's a company actually that we've covered recently in terms of benefiting from in- higher inflation, um partly linked to Trump and uh supposed infrastructure spending whether that actually happens, I'm not sure, but that company's good because um a bit of background about Ashted, basically they're a tool hire company. They operate predominantly in the US, but they also have some UK operations. Like you say, they have very high profit margins. They have very good cash flow also. They grow predominantly through they call same store growth, which is basically increasing the fleet size within their existing stores. So that's a way they kind of keep costs down. Again, they've, they've kind of delivered very reliable growth over, I would say, the past kind of three, four years. Their share price has actually done phenomenally well, particularly during the past 12 months, because, again, they are considered to be a company that will benefit from rising inflation. Okay, fascinating. And we also have a column from Chris Dillo in the piece talking about, well, the economic pictures he sees it and how it relates to prices. Yeah, he kind of gives a bit about, um, you know, historically, the kind of trends that we've seen kind of link with different asset classes and inflation and actually relating it back to the situation we've got now and maybe why actually we're in a bit of a different situation so that's interesting and then Kate talks a bit about kind of bonds and other assets yeah some of the some of the funds that you can buy if you want to protect yourself too um, which I think she further discusses on the on the podcast okay well that's all we have time for today but there's plenty more in there we have an interesting new spotlight on the business rate reform which has been very topical at the moment and how far UK retail as a sector is going to be able to uh, with stand the impact um we've also got you know quite a few profit warnings in there relating to different companies and there's a couple of pieces including bearball talking about craft Heinz and unilever there's plenty of analysis of that and i believe simon thompson is writing about bo levin and a shareholder spat there that's very spicy so that's it four pound 90 in all good news agents and we'll see you next week 